Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook, Chapter 22. At Emma May's, the party was in high gear. After Emma's announcement at the town meeting, people had begun showing up at her place around 8 o'clock. By 11.30, cars and pickup trucks crowded the street parked bumper to bumper for the entire block. Her house was full of loud, carefree people who knew how to have fun, playing bid, whist, and poker, eating ribs, chicken, and corn on the cob, drinking beer and Hennessy, telling stories, and talking shit. The thunderstorm had knocked out the electrical power, but Emma was prepared for that. Candles and kerosene lamps burned in every room downstairs. She had batteries for the boombox, so she could play hits nonstop by Bobby Blue Bland, Wilson Pickett, and B.B. King. She'd flung up the garage door and sat at the big barbecue grill on the edge of the garage floor. Fragrant smoke blowing into the air as she served up a seemingly endless supply of ribs and chicken. No one was going to stop her from partying. Least of all some vampires. Wait, what? I, like, if there's a pecking order of who can stop me from partying, I would think vampire. COVID. Who believed in those damn things anyway? She believed when she saw one with her own eyes. Lily, of course, believed that nonsense. As Emma stood at the kitchen counter, slathering her special barbecue sauce on another steaming slab of ribs, she looked out the window and saw the glow of Lily's cigarette as her sister hid behind the curtain of her home next door. Spying on Emma as usual, Emma sneered. If the old heifer was so curious about what was going on, she should have brought her skinny ass over here. You better take blood to the hospital, you old fool, Lily had said after the town meeting. I know you lying about him having a hangover. I heard that man got bit by one of them demon dogs. Emma had told Lily that she didn't know what the hell she was talking about and that she needed to mind her own business. But inwardly, she worried. Blood was still asleep. That man had never slept through a party in his life, but she couldn't wake him for anything. He would only groan and shift on the bed. He was running a bit of a fever. She had put a cold towel on his forehead to try and break the fever, and it didn't seem to help. She was really beginning to worry. But she wasn't going to take him to the hospital so they could pump him full of drugs and do government experiments on him like he was some kind of lab rat. She didn't trust the hospital in town. 
Not after what had been said at the meeting. If blood wasn't better by morning, she would take him to a hospital in South Haven. In the meantime, she would continue to check on him every hour. It was, in fact, about time she looked in on him again. She finished brushing sauce on the ribs, then placed the meat in the foil-lined pan. She took the pan to the serving table in the corner of the kitchen. Elmer Jackson, the police chief's cousin, and Buster Hodges, the daddy of Junior, the kid who cut her grass, hunched over the table, piling food on their plates. Where's your boy, Buster? Emma said. I ain't seen him here tonight. Don't know where that kid's at, Buster said. Probably out working. You know that boy ain't happy unless he's working somewhere. Ain't that the truth, Elmer said. Boy been saving up to buy a truck from me. He came by the lot and told me to save him that black 98 Ford pickup I didn't have for a few months. Said he was going to buy it. He ain't going to buy shit, Buster said. That boy's got pipe dreams like his mama did. Ah, let the boy have his dreams, Emma said. She sat down the ribs on the table. He's a sweet kid. Buster grumbled and stabbed the chicken thigh with his fork. Emma almost told him that his son wasn't the only one who had a dream once, but she let it go. Buster had to be reminded of his pro-boxing days. A couple years ago, at another of her card parties, Elmer, never one to bite his tongue, had told Buster that he lost $100 betting on his sorry ass in a fight. And Buster had launched across the table and knocked Elmer on his tail with his fearsome right hook. Since then, Elmer had avoided coming within 10 feet of Buster. But look at him now, Emma thought. The men were fellowshipping like true brothers, eating together. It proved that when things got too heavy to bear, there was nothing like an old-fashioned house party to set things right. A party was good for the soul. She went through the house, smiling to herself. All around her, folks were having a good time. On the boombox, Wilson Pickett crooned his signature song, in the midnight hour. Earl Jones, a card party regular, jumped up from his seat at the poker game as Emma walked past. Drunk as a skunk, he took her hand and twirled her around in a little dance. Emma giggled, feeling like a teenager again. That heifer, Lily, didn't know what she was missing, staying cooped up in her house like the crazy old woman in the fairy tale who lived in a giant shoe. The only difference was that Lily had that pissy wiener dog, Rex, instead of a bunch of cats. All the cats are gone out of this town, Lily had said earlier. Did you notice that, you old fool? All the cats are gone, scared off by those demon dogs. Lily and her superstitions. Emma didn't care about some damn alley cats. Earl stumbled in the middle of his jig, and Emma helped him sit down. You better sit your tail down and get back to them cards, she said. You can't hang with me, baby. Don't mean I don't want to try, Earl said. He flashed a lusty grin that was highlighted by a shiny gold tooth. You better not let blood hear you say that, she smiled. I'm about to bring him down here. About time. Wake that gimp leg nigga up, Earl said. He expertly rifled his cards in his big hands. I want to get him at this table and clean out his pockets. You hush, Emma said. Upstairs, the hallway was dark. Emma had not bothered to place a candle around the staircase, since no one but she had any business going up there, and she had lived in the house for so long she could walk around blindfolded. But the blackness seemed especially thick and warm, shot through with glints of purple. Just her eyes playing tricks on her, she figured. 
but Lily's superstitions rang through her mind. Those vampires are demons, Lily had said. You believe in demons, don't you? If you believe in God, you gotta believe in the devil too, sister. Demons are the devil's minions. Ain't no such thing, Emma mumbled under her breath. She opened the door to the master bedroom. Inside the room, a candle on the nightstand cast flickering light. Blood sat on the edge of the bed, head lowered. He was bare-chested and wore only his blue pajama bottoms. Curly gray hair shone on his thin chest. How long you been up, baby? Emma said. She began to walk towards him, ready to check his temperature. Let me take a look at you. When blood raised his head and looked at her, she halted. An icy finger slid down her spine. Something was wrong with blood. The wrongness was in his dark, red-rimmed eyes. Looking into those eyes of his was like looking at a rattlesnake. Instinctively, she broke eye contact. Come on over here, brown sugar, he said. His voice was raspy but commanding. I want to hold your fine body in my arms. Blood called her brown sugar whenever he wanted to romance her. But there was nothing flirtatious about his manner. Not this time. His jaw was tight. His fingers clenched and unclenched. He looked like a man who was ready to rumble, not make love. What was wrong with him? Had his fever cooked his brain in the stew? Or was Lily right? Emma took a step backwards, the floorboards creaking beneath her. Where are you going, woman? Blood rose. He moved with a silkiness that she had never seen from him, as though his bad leg was a thing of the past. I want you to come to me. What? What's wrong with you? She said. She had to force out the words. Her heart was pounding so fast. Ain't a damn thing wrong with me, baby. I ain't never felt so good in my life. He laughed. <laughs> I want to make you feel good like I do. Emma couldn't be sure because of the quivering light and shadows. But when he had opened his mouth to laugh, she thought she had seen long, sharp teeth. The kind of teeth a dog would have. Or a vampire. Lily's know-it-all voice played in her mind. I told you the truth, you old fool. Why don't you ever listen to me? Blood spread his arms. Come on over to me, brown sugar. Let me make you feel good. Spinning around the run was so hard for Emma, it was like trying to move when submerging water. The air itself seemed to push against her to keep her from getting out of there. But she broke out of the room and slammed the door behind her. The darkness in the hallway swallowed her. She was careless for not lighting the candle up here. On the other side of the door, the floorboards groaned. Blood was coming. There was no way to keep him from getting out. She couldn't lock the door from this side. But she had a house full of people who could help her. Big, strong men like Buster. They would help her handle blood, whatever was wrong with them. She ran across the hall, bumping into things. She flew down the steps so quickly she nearly tripped over her own feet. Girl, what you running for? Earl said. Cards in one hand, he tipped up his full glass of Hennessy, taking a long gulp. He burped, then chuckled. <coughs> you come back looking for a real man to handle you? Emma opened her mouth to speak. 
And then she saw movement outside the living room windows. The curtains were peeled back, giving a view of the front yard. There was a gang of people out there. Folks with pale, grimy faces, dressed in hospital gowns with dark stains across the front. They moved like wolves on the prowl, hunched over, muscles tense and ready to pounce, intent on a single, deadly objective. Emma could not believe it, but it was right there in front of her face. Her buzz drained out of her like water slipping away in a tub. Lock the doors, Emma cried. Everybody, we're being attacked. People gaped at her, their eyes glazed, like she had stood up and shouted something in Japanese. The hell are you talking about, Emma? A man said in a slurred voice. You just drunk, old gal. To hell we're waiting on these drunk fools, she thought. She hustled across the living room to lock the front door. The door exploded open. Emma stumbled backwards. Cold wind and rain swooped inside, and two of those vampire-like things leapt onto the threshold, hissing, their fangs bared. Emma screamed and ran. Ah! All around the house, windows shattered as if from the force of a tremendous gale. But deep in her heart, she knew it was no wind that was responsible. Those monsters had probably surrounded her house and were breaking inside. With all the folks lounging around her place, coming here would be like a feast for those creatures. She itched to get her shotgun, but the one she wanted was in her bedroom closet. She couldn't go up there. Blood would be waiting. She raced into the kitchen. Windows were busted in there, too, and one of those creatures must have hurled itself through her hole. She saw one that looked as if it used to be a young woman. Hell, it looked kind of like Shanice Stevens, who had won the town beauty pageant last year. But if it was really her, shit, she looked like a mess. The lady monster had cornered Buster Hodges. Buster held up his massive fist in a boxer's stance his face resolute. The creature darted towards him. Buster threw his famous right hook and hit nothing but air. The vampire moved way too fast. It seized Buster's arm and bit into his meaty bicep. Buster cried out, ah! and his legs sagged. Nigga, for real? That's your plan? I'm a uppercut, a, a vampire. That's, y'all, I'm a, I'm a uppercut him to death. In the face. Watch. Within seconds, the creature climbed on top of him like she was sexing him up. But his mouth was attached to Buster's neck. And the greedy sucking sounds made Emma's stomach turn. Emma was too frightened to try and help him. She went through the door at the back of the kitchen. Stumbled into the garage. The barbecue grill spat and sizzled. Pungent smoke pouring through the half-open garage door and into the night air. Throwing this party was the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life, she thought, more lucidly than she had thought anything all evening. This town has slid into a corner of hell, and here I am throwing a fucking party. How could I be so dumb? I should have split the minute I walked out of that church. But it was too late to get away. Vehicles blocked the driveway, keeping her from backing her Ford out of the garage. She would have even taken someone else's car to get away, but she'd have to go back inside the house to find keys, and she was afraid to go back in there. 
Screams of pain and sounds of mayhem came from her house. The cacophony of furniture being overturned. Glass shattering. Guns boomed too. Many of the folks at the party carried pieces. Emma wondered whether a gun would do any good against these demon fiends. In the movies, guns never killed vampires. Hadn't they said something at the church about fire being lethal to those monsters? She looked at the barbecue grill. Small flames danced in the charcoal depths, licking at the burning ribs. She found a length of wood lying in the corner, left over from one of Blood's woodworking projects. She doused the end of the plank with lighter fluid and dipped it into the wriggling flames in the grill. The tip of the wood lit up with a whoosh, the heat baking the sweat on her face. You know better than to play with fire, brown sugar. It was blood. He entered the garage through the kitchen doorway. His fangs were fully exposed, rivulets of saliva running down his chin. Hunger gleamed in his eyes. You stay away from me, blood, Emma said. She waved the torch in front of her. I don't want to hurt you. Blood's gaze warily followed the flames. He was clearly afraid of fire. He circled her slowly, and she turned to keep the torch between them. Anguish twisted his face. I gotta have you, brown sugar. I can't help it. I got to. I can't control it. You ain't gotta do nothing but stay away from me. He growled, fainted at her. Emma thrust the torch towards his chest. He screeched as the flame seared his flesh, a horrible sound she had never heard him make, not even when he had once dropped his cane and tumbled down a flight of stairs. She felt guilty, just for an instant, and pulled back, and it was her moment of weakness that blood swung his arm, backhanding her across the face. She had never been hit so hard in her life. She flew several feet across the garage and smashed into a wheelbarrow. Roaring, blood shambled after her. He fell on top of her. Emma was a strong woman, stronger than many men, probably stronger than blood when he was an ordinary man. But she was weak compared to this creature. She tried to wrestle from under him, but couldn't move him. She bucked her knee into his groin, and it made no difference. She tore her teeth into his forearm, and he didn't release his hold on her. He dipped his head down to her neck so eagerly that his skull bumped against her chin, making her bite her tongue at the same instant that his teeth pierced her neck. Warm blood spurted in her mouth. He drank from her like a child suckling at a mother's breast, moaning. Hmm, this ain't so bad, she thought inside. It feels good to let him suck from me. I don't think I've ever felt anything so good in my life. That old heifer Lily doesn't know what she's missing. Lily May stood at the window, watching the happenings at her sister's place until the monsters arrived. When those blood-drinking demons lurked towards Emma's house, Lily snatched the curtains closed and stepped away from the glass. I told that old fool not to throw that party, Lily muttered. She drew on her cigarette. Mule-headed girl never wants to listen to me. Although her words were harsh, she was frightened. The devil was loose in town. She felt sorry for her sister and wished she could help her, but there was nothing she could do. Not really. She was just an old woman with bad lungs and a toy dog whose bark was bigger than his bite. She shuffled across the living room, 
A single candle glowed in a dish on the nightstand. She usually liked candlelight. It reminded her of when she was a child, at a time when the world was a kinder, more considerate place. But this candlelight only stirred her fear. The shifting patches of shadows in the room seemed to conceal threatening things. Perched on the arm of the sofa, Rex whined softly. The dog picked up on her anxiety, as if they shared a telepathic bond. He watched her with his big black eyes, his short tail thumping nervously. He suffered from what she called the little big dog syndrome, and tended to bark at everything that wandered into the yard, from squirrels to cats to fallen leaves. But tonight, he sat on the couch, and he kept quiet. The dog was no fool. It understood danger was near. We gonna be alright, little man, Lily said. She placed her thin hand on the dog's back, while her other hand picked up the phone off the nightstand. She was gonna call the police. She could do something to help Emma and her boozing friends. There was no dial tone. She put the handset back on the cradle. She was not surprised. The devil was crafty. He sure was. Clipping the phone lines throughout the town would have been one of his first moves. Cut off the people from civilization and hope. Sounds of terror reached her from next door. Banging, shouting, breaking, shooting, screaming. She touched the crucifix that dangled on her necklace. She prayed that God would keep Emma and the other folks safe. But even as she prayed, doubts crept into her spirit. Emma never listened to anyone. This would be one time that her stubborn nature would get her into trouble. Lily hated to think such thoughts, but she couldn't help it. Dear Lord, have mercy, she said, and her words seemed loud in the silent house. So loud that she wondered if someone might hear her, or something. Rex stopped wagging his tail. Lily quietly extinguished her smoke in a tin ashtray. Noise at the front window. A brittle sound like a skeletal finger clicking against the glass. She lived in an old house. Sometimes it creaked and made settling sounds. But this noise was nothing like that. It had purpose. Someone was at the window. Someone with evil in his heart. A tangible malevolence seeped through the glass and into the house, like foul smoke. Fortunately, heavy curtains covered the window. But she wondered whether the creature outside had the power to see through the fabric, and if it was watching her at that moment, standing stock still beside the couch with one hand on her dog and the other hand closed over her crucifix. She closed her eyes. Please, Lord, send them away. Put a fence around me. Keep me safe. Under her hand, Rex trembled, but the little dog kept quiet, though his heart throbbed in a frenzy. She held her breath, praying fervently. The wind sewed around the house, and it seemed to carry away the threat. The feeling that she was being watched passed. She exhaled. She didn't realize she had been holding her breath. The commotion continued next door, but she had been spared. Thank the Lord. She wasn't going to take any more chances. She gathered Rex in her arms, picked up her Bible off the coffee table, blew out the candle, and went to the basement. It was a comfortable hideaway. Her son had lived down there for a year after he graduated college. There were no windows, the walls were brick, and the door was thick and strong. 
An over-refrigerator held bottled water, apple juice, cheese, bread, and ham. She had stocked up earlier that afternoon in preparation for a time like this. Some people wait a lifetime for a moment like this. I can't believe it's happening to me. She would remain down there until she received a sign that Dandra passed. She lit another candle and settled into the old sunken couch. Rex hopped onto the cushion beside her and snuggled up against her leg. She cracked open her Bible to find the book of Revelation. In her opinion, the most frightening thing ever written, but an appropriate choice for tonight. And began to read, picking up from where she had left off earlier in the evening. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and each head was a blasphemous name. At Pearl's house, David sat on a rocking chair on the screened-in porch, drinking chamomile tea. He needed a reprieve from the anxiety that permeated the air inside the house. Perhaps Pearl had worked miracles before, but all of them worried about Jackson's fate. Cool air swirled through the screen, touched him with its fingers. Silvery rain pummeled the earth, and lightning occasionally made a jagged crack in the dark clouds. In the porch, a candle on a small table provided the only steady light. What a night, he thought. If we could survive until morning, maybe we have a chance. The door opened, startling him. But it was only Naya. A white towel hung over her shoulder, and her face looked clean and fresh. It's a little chilly out here, she said. The tea's keeping me warm. I brought some for you. Come have a seat. He patted the chair beside him, picked up the silver tea kettle, and poured tea into an extra mug. You're a sweetheart. She settled next to him and took the cup. For a minute, it seemed to him that they were somewhere else. Perhaps at a quaint bed and breakfast in a scenal coastal town somewhere, winding down after a pleasantly tiring day of sightseeing, shopping, and eating in charming restaurants. They would enjoy the serenity of the night and then retire to their bed, make love, and sink into the warm folds of sleep. He shook his head as though waking from a daydream. What's wrong, she said. I was dreaming that we were somewhere else, he said, where we could enjoy each other's company in peace. What a nice thought, she smiled, took a sip of tea. I felt like I've been living a nightmare tonight. It's kind of relaxing to imagine being somewhere else. A companionable silence enveloped them. The only sounds were the faint sputter of the candle, the drumming rain, and the whispering wind. When this is over, he said suddenly, I want us to be together. She shifted to face him. I want to be with you too, David. More than I've ever wanted to be with anyone. He touched her face. Ran his fingers through her hair. He softly kissed her lips. Although he had said he wanted them to be together, he didn't have a full understanding of what he had meant. Did he want to marry her? Live with her? Or what? He couldn't nail down his feelings and define specifically what being together involved. He knew only that his desire to be with her was as powerful as his need to breathe. 
Or do I know more than that about my feelings, he wondered. I need to be honest, completely. We haven't known each other very long, but I feel as if I've lived a lifetime with you, he said. What are you trying to say, David? Curiosity danced in her eyes. He smiled self-consciously. Am I beating around the bush or what? Shelley looked at him, smiling. He sucked in a breath. I love you, he said. Her grin was like sunshine breaking through an overcast day. I love you too, David. He grasped her hand, kissed it. I really believe we were meant to be together. Even if none of this other crap was happening, somehow, somewhere, we were destined to meet. Does that sound crazy? I knew you were special from the moment we met, she said. And it wasn't just because you were so cute. He laughed. She wrapped her arms around his neck and pulled him forward so that her noses were nearly touching. I want you to promise us something, she said. Promise us? Yes, us. Promise us that you'll get us through this. Naya, I haven't been doing this alone. You've been there every step of the way, and I will be. But in the end, sweetheart, it's going to come down to you. And you know it. Make the promise for both of us, for our future together. I promise I'll get us through this. Thank you. She kissed him deeply. Thank you. He leaned back in the chair, holding her hand. He never wanted the moment to end. But it was inevitable. They have work to do. We have to talk about our next move, he said. I think we should leave soon. She nodded. I thought about that. We can't help Jackson ourselves, and we're putting Pearl in danger by staying here. Exactly. I want to take Jalil with us, but I know he won't want to leave behind his dad. Let's pray to Pearl can heal the chief, she said. But if it doesn't happen soon... There was no need for her to finish the sentence. Their path was clear. With or without Jackson, they would have to leave. Soon, the vampires would be coming. Van Jackson floated into consciousness, awakening into a gray, blurry, unfamiliar world that was somewhere in a drug-induced dream. He couldn't feel his body. His body was numb, but he thought he was lying down. Some alert part of him, deep in his mind, told him that he lay on someone's bed. But he couldn't see the walls of the room. They were fuzzy and black. It was so quiet in there that he might have been lying inside of a sealed coffin. Was he in a hospital? He had been hurt bad, he remembered. He recalled the pain searing through his chest and the blood. So much blood. Was he dead? Faintly, he heard a voice. His son, somewhere nearby. His boy's voice was threaded with worry and cautious hope. More than anything in the world, Jackson wanted to sit up and put his arms around his kid. He had never been an affectionate man, but he wanted to squeeze Jalil in his arms so tightly that it would feel his boy's heart throbbing against his chest. It was his son, damn it. A precious human being born of his own flesh and blood. 
He didn't want to leave this world without holding his child and experiencing the enduring reality of him one more time. But he couldn't feel his own limbs, much less move. His muscles would not obey his commands. So they were at Pearl's house. Made sense. The hospital was gone to hell after all. Jackson tried to speak a word of reassurance. To tell his son that he heard him. But his lips would not move. His tongue was like a block of wood. I didn't die earlier. But I'm dying now. The thought slipped inside of his mind with the terrible ease of a splinter sinking in the soft flesh. It lodged in his brain and would not go away. It was true. He was dying. He was not angry at God for allowing this to happen. He felt only regret. He had wasted so much time working, dutifully serving the public, and it failed to serve his own family. The bond that he had experienced with Jalil earlier that night had come far too late to appease his guilt. He heard more voices hovering around him. Women's voices. A man who sounded like David and his son. But he could not see them or touch them. He floated in a gray haze. Wake him up again. Jalil cried. I saw him blink. Do something to wake him up. Tense, anxious voices followed Jalil's outburst. I gotta talk to my boy, Jackson thought. He felt that he was drifting away. As though he lay on a rubber raft bobbing gently across the sea. He struggled to resist the pool. He wasn't ready to pass away. Not yet. He had to force open his lips to speak his final words to his child. But it was so hard that his lips might have been sewn together with fine wire. But at last, he parted his lips, drew in a breath, and formed words. Sitting on the bed, Jalil cradled his father in his arms. He would not accept that his dad might be dying. Dad couldn't die. He was too young. He had years and years of living left ahead of him. He had to be around to see Jalil graduate from high school, go to college, start a career, get married, have kids of his own, and be a granddad to Jalil's children. This was not the way it was supposed to be. This could not be happening. This was not real. He had already lost mom. He could not lose dad. But Dad had blinked, only once, and when his eyes slid closed again, they did not open. His chest rose and fell with agonizing slowness. Jalil, with one arm cradled around his father's shoulders, reached down and squeezed his father's hand. His skin was dry and frighteningly cool. I'm not letting you die, Dad. No way. I'm going to pull you through. Pearl, David, and Naya huddled around the bed. They were talking, probably trying to calm him, but their words were a meaningless babble to him. He could not focus on what they were saying. He could only hold his father and concentrate on willing him to live, as if his own desire to save his dad could thwart God's plan to take him away. I ain't letting you die, Daddy. He pressed his ear against his father's chest, near his heart. It was beating so slow, too slow. He had to make dad's heart beat faster or else he'd lose him forever. 
I love you. Whispered words, spoken so softly Jalil could barely hear them. Jalil raised his head and stared at his father. Dad's eyes were closed, but his lips formed a melancholy smile. No, Dad, no. Dad's hand squeezed Jalil's fingers. Then his grip slackened. No! Jalil pressed his ear against his father's chest. Dad's heart had stopped beating. No! Hot tears blinded Jalil. Comforting hands rested on his shoulders, people trying to take him away from his father. He didn't want them to take him away. He wanted to wrap his dad in his arms and will his heart back to life. But he was too weak to struggle and so sick that he thought he was going to throw up. He allowed them to peel his arms from around his dad. Someone carried him and put him in a chair. Then someone embraced him. A woman, Pearl, judging by the scent of her. She hugged him and whispered in his ear, Your daddy loved you, Jalil. Always remember that, sweetheart. He loved you and he will always be with you. Always. Jalil squeezed her close and wept. Our worst nightmares are coming true, David thought. Jackson, gone. Could it get any worse? He felt as though someone had slugged him. He staggered to a chair. Across the room, Jalil desperately clutched Pearl in his arms, as though being torn away from her would sweep him away into oblivion. He felt sorry for the boy. He had lost both of his parents, and he was only a teenager. It was so terribly unfair. I'm responsible for him from now on, he thought. I promised Jackson I would be there for his son. I gotta keep my word. Naya came into the room with a fresh towel. She gently wiped Jalil's face. Jalil's in good hands, David assured himself. Between myself and Naya, we'll take care of him and make sure he has everything he needs. On the bed, Jackson lay still. He was a good, courageous, honest man. There weren't enough men like him in the world. Now, he was gone. His prone body had a strange emptiness to it like a soulless wax figure. The essence of the spirit that was Van Jackson had vacated its earthly vehicle for another, better place. Despair gripped David. He was convinced that they were engaged in a fool's game. They couldn't win. Franklin was dead. Jackson was dead too. There were dozens of vampires on the prowl, and perhaps hundreds more to come in the next day. Why continue this pointless fight? Why not find a way out of town and put it behind them for good? You can't quit, a nagging voice told him. William Hunter didn't quit. Neither can you. Besides, do you think running will solve anything? Diallo and Kyle want you most of all. Wherever you go, they'll find you. He wished he could silence the voice of his conscience, but it spoke the truth. They cannot run away. There was no escape. The only course of action was to do their duty. He sighed heavily. The burden of responsibility weighed upon his shoulders like a heavy barbell. Standing up was like rising out of a 300-pound squat. 
a noise suddenly reached him that sent a shiver of fear through his bones. Dogs outside. Barking. The vampires have found them. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on Podchaser Copy that Paste it into Apple Podcasts Copy that Paste it into the Good Pods app We appreciate each and every one of y'all who have left the review And who are checking us out on Good Pods and Podchaser You can donate to the show At a Patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. You can go to the tip jar. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this feat. This is Single Simulcast.